0: That's a pen method. Hello,
1: wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 104 of Shut Up and Wrestle, where my guest will be international wrestling historian and collector Roy Lusher. Been looking forward to this one for a long time. We'll get to the Roy Luscher conversation in just a minute. A couple of quick pieces of housekeeping this week that I wanted to get out of the way before we jump headlong into that. First of all, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone for the kind words, the listeners of the Jim Cornette Experience. Yes, if you haven't heard it yet, I was afforded the opportunity once again to sit in with Jim, this time under much better circumstances. Brian Last, looking for a much-needed, much-deserved, and well-earned break, a day off, if you will. So he called in me, the Joan Rivers of the Jim Cornette Experience, to step in and co-host with Jim. If you're looking for the episode, it's number 515 of the Jim Cornette Experience, called the Astronomy Edition. We had a blast talking about modern wrestling a lot more than I usually do on this show. So, if you want to hear some of my thoughts on that, if you want to check out what Jim and I had to say about a wide variety of topics, check it out. The Jim Cornette Experience, episode 515, the Astronomy Edition. Thanks so much to Jim and Brian for giving me another chance to pop up on the show. I always have an awesome time and a great time doing it. So, thank you. Also, want to remind you that the brand new April edition of Pro Wrestling Illustrated is on sale. It doesn't have a whole lot from me in there, but it's a great issue you want to pick up anyway because it's the year-end Achievement Awards. I think, aside from the PWI 500, that's the issue that everybody most looks forward to. They've been doing it now for over 50 years. The Achievement Awards predate even PWI itself. It goes back to the days of the earlier Stanley Weston, Bill Apter magazines. So do check it out, the April issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated PWI Achievement Awards on sale now. Now let's get to this week's conversation. You know, it started out, as we, as a lot of us know, Roy Lucher is an expert on Lucha Libre. That's really his great love, and also he has a great interest in Japanese wrestling as well. And we certainly talked about those things quite a bit for people that enjoy that kind of talk, but... We got into a lot of other topics, a wide array of topics that I was glad happened. We talk about a lot of the changes in the wrestling business over the years, certain aspects of old school wrestling that we really love and that we really miss, things about American wrestling that were influenced by wrestling from other countries. We talk about collecting and tape trading, just a wide array of fascinating topics. I think you're going to love it. And I'm going to take you to the conversation right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome the most recognizable Lucha Libre fan in the world, as well as somebody who's been devoted to pro wrestling and not just Lucha Libre for decades. Also a known expert and follower of wrestling in Japan as well and all over the world. He is the owner of one of the most impressive wrestling DVD and tape and action figure collections in existence, as well as uh, the wearer of some of the spiffiest shirts that I personally have ever seen. I'm talking about the one and only Roy Lucia. Roy, thank you so much for being a guest on shut up and wrestle.
0: I appreciate you having me on Brian. I'm really looking forward to uh, what we have to talk about today. Good. How'd I do with that
1: introduction? You looked impressed. (laughs) Uh, with, with yourself thank you very much i really
0: do appreciate it
1: <laughs> that's great no i you know i we crossed paths briefly in the past at cauliflower alley and i think we were talking about even before we started um i've enjoyed going the past few years and and it's good to see you there i know you you've helped out a little bit with some of the lucha stuff even that we did uh, with the wrestling news when we were really getting it off the ground and you know, we wanted people, if we're going to be covering that along with everything else, we want somebody we that has some credibility in that area and that people know. And, of course, you always come to mind when it comes to Lucha stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I started watching wrestling in 1981, you know, just like any kid. It was all about, you know, WWF, NWA, world class, whatever was on TV. In the late 80s, I remember flipping the channels and I saw American guys I haven't seen in a minute, like Kamala, Chris Adams. and But I saw other guys too, like these mask guys and you know guys with one eye. And I started look, looking into it and asking uh, my friend's dad the names. And he would tell me, oh, that's El Satanico, that's Pirata Morgan, that's Super Astro. So I would get to know who they are. Yeah, I'd watch it on and off because, you know, a foreign channel. I didn't know what time and all that it was on. But in early 92, um, there was a show at the Anaheim Convention Center and the guy sitting next to me had a thing with just words in it, but no pictures. And I'm 17 at the time and I was used to the Pro Wrestling Illustrated, The Wrestler, WWF Magazine. I asked the guy about it. He's all, oh, this is the Wrestling Observer Newsletter i read it and it was like not pretending it was real it was you know kayfabing and stuff like that and talking about behind the scenes stuff their real names why they lost why they won the business side of it and all that actually got it the guy gave it to me i actually called dave that night started speaking to him he found out that i had a satellite dish in my backyard so he got me in touch with uh, dr lucha steve sims who ran a weekly thing called the lucha libre weekly newsletter started um, taping UWA wrestling, CMLL wrestling off a satellite dish because being in uh, Garden Grove by Anaheim where I grew up, it was so close to Mexico, I get some great uh, feeds off a satellite dish that were really clear. So, I started becoming a weekly source for Lucha tapes uh, in the Observer. Back when Dave had that reader section going on, the great thing too was all those great shows that were happening in the Los Angeles area Cal State, Los Angeles, Compton, Bell, later AAA at the sports arena. So, I would, that'd be my weekends. I would do three, sometimes four shows a weekend while working. And, you know, this Lucha became my life and just, that's and here we are thirty years later and it still is my life you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know it, it's interesting. I guess the it's safe to say. And first of all, we're talking about a time, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Where lucha libre hadn't really penetrated that much into American style wrestling like today. It's so much a part of what we see on you know the most mainstream of american wrestling shows i mean on monday night raw you see guys doing all these moves that back in the day would have been like whoa what is this crazy stuff this like lucha libre stuff now it's very mainstream in american style wrestling
0: yeah conan says it often uh because of the tape trading stuff in the past 30 years and youtube and dvds and crazy max and all those different forms and stuff It seems in some ways that wrestling has turned into a hybrid of the great stuff you see from Japan, some of the flashy stuff from Lucha, and then, of course, the American style. And it seems like so many wrestlers nowadays want to take those three styles and turn it into one, and that's become their forte.
1: Right, because it used to be when they would occasionally bring in somebody that specialized in that style – it was a big deal. It was like, oh, you're going to see some amazing stuff here, fans. You know, I'm mean, like, they really stood out from everybody else.
0: Yeah. Nowadays, you know, to me, the ones that stand out are the ones that stick to one style, like yes. uh, this is Zach Saber Junior., Negro Negro Navarro, and guys that, or, or you know, you got the L.A. Parks and the Ruchas that cater to the violent side and don't do the the hybrid you know but yeah that's to me nowadays yeah it's it's almost more special to go back to doing one style because it's become so common to see the three styles mixed in one
1: yeah and it's changed The, the attitudes have changed so much now because now you have generations of wrestlers and fans who've grown up exposed to it but like as you know full well there was once a time a long time ago where in in american in the American side of the industry, and I mean Canada too, it really was kind of looked down on. It was like um yes. by the old timers, like I remember reading in even in Luthez's biography how he talked about when he would go down there to wrestle, you almost get the feeling like he was like holding his nose, like to sort of like he was cashing a check and he looked at them as like circus performers and these guys just didn't have a lot of respect for them. It was, you know, almost like seen as a sideshow or something
0: yeah uh jake alexander black metal he um wants to do a seminar at cauliflower alley one year about the lucha history and what it is today because he says even nowadays he goes to some cauliflower alleys and there's still a prominent belief that lucha is the uh, red headed stepchild of pro wrestling
1: i think i mean there's a lot of sides to i think why that was and I know there's always people will always point to the reason being, well, um, you know, the Lucha Libre style. There's not a lot of psychology. They're flying all over the place. They're not selling as much. And sometimes they say that about Japanese wrestling. And and I and, and but I do think and I, th- I don't think that's totally wrong, but I think there was a lot of feeling of being threatened by it. I think with a lot of the old timers, they worked a certain way and they started thinking well, I could never do that in a million years, and I certainly hope nobody's going to ask me to do that. So I think there was kind of a defensiveness that they didn't want it to be... They didn't want American wrestling to become like that, I think.
0: what And to me, what's crazy about that is you talk to Lucha fans and they put their nose up at what they see with WWF on TV. Like, to them, that's hokey and phony, and you know what we have is the real stuff, and that's for kids or you know like it's it's kind of funny how how the attitudes change from wherever you go but to me the crazy thing is while there obviously is a lot of flips and dives in lucha there's a feel to lucha when you have a true lucha show and promotion uh vandal drummond kurt brown was once hired to work on a show he was all hey the guy needs luchador so Kurt went to the show, and if anyone American Kurt Brown knows the lucha style more than anyone because he was trained lucha at Gill's gym and all that. He gets there, and the promoter, who I guess he didn't know beforehand, said, uh, Oh, um, I hired lucha to be here. And Kurt Brown's like, Yeah, that's me. He, oh, but no, I meant costumes and masks and dives and all that stuff and it's not always that you know right. there's many luchadores, you know you got negro navarro el Tecano negro casas you got a lot of guys who never wore masks in their career and obviously they're luchadores. but obviously the majority of them do wear masks you know but it's it's not always the common or not always the the norm you know
1: yeah and i have it on my bucket list to go to arena mexico and i really mean that and uh, because you always hear that it's one of the most fun and exciting places to see wrestling period. I know Dave Meltzer has said that too. In his experience, it was the most fun he ever had. He never and been
0: I, there. He's never been there. Am I, am I confused on something then? Yeah. He, he, he went to triple mania. He went to other shows that triple a ran in okay. Tijuana. He's been to the auditorio de Tijuana. He's been whatever, but he's never been to Reno, Mexico. He was planning on going last year with rob bahari rob viper online but uh that never happened but oh. he's he needs he said he wants to go one day
1: maybe yeah. So you know what maybe what he what i was reading or remembering is that he was saying that he had heard that from people that it was the most fun that they ever had seeing wrestling live and i know you know my my sister lives in mexico city now she moved there recently and she Who watched a little bit of wrestling, not much, because she's my sister growing up. You know, she had a crush on Shawn Michaels, blah, blah, blah. But Mm -hmm. not not a huge fan. But she's been going to Arena Mexico because it's so much fun. And she'll she'll send me videos. She's like, Brian, you have to come down here and see this. And like my daughter went down there to visit, and they're sending me videos. My I was like, You got to get me a program, get me a mask, get me all this stuff. So now I have the excuse if I go down to visit my sister, I'm going to Arena Mexico, period.
0: And the crazy thing too about Mexico city is I believe 10 million people live there. There was an average on the weekends of 25 to 30 shows in Mexico city happening. Like arena Mexico is just one of many shows. Uh, My wife went down there. My wife and I went down there last year for triple mania and triple mania was on a Saturday. The day before was a, was a Friday And we had a choice of Arena Mexico or a whole bunch of different shows. Bandita was running a show at a gym, and we decided to hit that instead. There are so many shows that go down there on a daily basis, but especially Friday, Saturday, Sunday. At least 15, 20, sometimes 30 shows happening because of how big the city is.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I started realizing that since I've been doing the wrestling news stuff because we try to sort of like cherry pick what shows are we going to cover and what's worth, you know, what makes the cut of, you know, we can't drive ourselves nuts writing every show up. So that's when I started going, oh my God, and noticing what you're saying that there's so many things. And I especially noticed it because WWE came there it was sometime in 2023, they did a, a house show. And I, I think it was the first time they'd been there in a few years. And I covered it, and I'm looking at what else is going on, and I'm going, oh, my God, okay, so you got this WWE show happening in this building, and literally a five-minute walk away, you have CMLL doing a show the same night, and right over here, down the street here, you have this show, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, there must have been some great parties going on in Mexico City that night after the shows, you know?
0: Yeah, and one thing, too, when you finally go down to the show is it's not just about the wrestling inside of the building is you'll see all the vendors setting up outside the building, any wrestling show beforehand with masks and little toys. And My programs. sister told Yeah. And the thing about arena Mexico too, is, is earlier this year they started an official tunnel where a lot of the wrestlers go to sell gimmicks, masks, masks, Uh, sign items take photos and stuff like that they never did that before that arena Arena mexico has been in existence cml has been in existence for 90 years this year was their 90th anniversary show i believe arena mexico has been there for 55 or 65 years and they've never had anything official they're just so used to the bootleggers being outside they've come to accept that that's why they really don't have many official products out there this year they finally decided they created a tunnel. Atlantis, Pirata Morgan, Blue Panther, Forza Guerrero, all these guys go there and sell masks and gimmicks and stuff like that. And It's mind-blowing. All those lucha shows I went to in the 90s, in fact, my wife and I were just talking about this earlier, is signing autographs, photos with fans, this is all new because before there was the argument that they didn't want to be seen even 100, 200 feet away from the guy they're going to wrestle later that night due to kayfabe. You know, like, hey, why aren't you fighting or whatever? You, you hate each other, but yeah, the, the attitudes are starting to change down there, where it's okay to, you know, be a few feet away from the guy you're wrestling that night and, um, you know, sell things and take photos.
1: Yeah, and I don't think people sometimes who aren't followers of it or who aren't up on it realize how strong the kayfabe always has been in lucha libre because i think sometimes people think oh it's very cartoonish and they're wearing all these costumes and things and they're doing these crazy moves so obviously you know they're not they're not trying to convince people that this is real but that's that's not true at all i mean there's a strong tradition of very serious cape i mean even like if you go back to the old santo movies and things like and the following that he had i mean he was a sports hero i mean people believe in what he did even in the movies when he's portraying himself in the movie he's this he's a sports figure the movies never pull the curtain back or it's it's a hundred percent to the hilt uh legitimate the way that they show him as being this sports hero in mexico
0: have you noticed mexico is the only country japan has books that have broken kayfabe on wrestling. America, oh geez you, God, you forget especially it. know God, yeah, forget Mexico's it. the over. one yeah, the Mexico's the one country where there are zero books written that pull the curtain back on what happens, wrestlers careers, any of that stuff there oh, yeah. are, um, I, I discussed this off air with you, there's one wrestler especially if you discuss previous gimmicks he worked before a certain current gimmick he will block you on social media because he's, it's that level of kayfabe
1: you know, and, and that's interesting. I I hadn't thought about it until recently. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but when they they did the movie on Cassandro, which is I've uh, seen that. I
0: saw it the day it came out. Yes.
1: Okay, but I but if you notice when you watch that movie, and I recommend it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think it's on Netflix, right, or something like Amazon. That. It's Amazon. On Amazon. Okay, Amazon yeah. Prime. Um, the movie it very carefully dances around. I wouldn't say that it 100% protects kayfabe. I don't think it does, but it doesn't 100% destroy it either. They don't, they never come out and flat out tell you that these matches are worked, but they carefully dance around the idea that he's playing with these personas. He doesn't know what character he wants to play, but it seems like they're very careful not to totally destroy the illusion either.
0: That's, I brought this up to Rob Bahari too. So after I watched the movie, it, to me, it's almost like it's not the gay or the cross-dressing stereotypes here that are the um, kayfabe thing of the movie. You see the part where Cassandra's told he's going to fight Hijo de Santo. And the person that comes up from the Santo camp says, now, you know, Santo never loses. You know, they, they make right. it very clear ahead of time. <laughs> to me, that's the biggest thing of the movie that's kind of um, taboo in Mexico is the whole admitting it's not, it's a work. Right. That's yeah, that's definitely. And um, Cassandra's uh, best friend, Pimpernail Scarlata. I asked him about the movie a couple months ago and he said that's the one thing about the movie he didn't like. Not anything about Cassandra himself, but that they admit in the movie that it's a business and not a sport.
1: They do. But I think like and again, it's hard to defend to somebody obviously who grew up on that culture where it's protected 100 percent there's so much further that they could have gone that they didn't go. Like, I do think that they pulled back a little, like, for example, you know, if you watch a movie like man on the moon, right. Where they just blow the whole thing up and you see Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler sitting in a room together, working everything out and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they never go that far in this movie. They don't show people working out finishes or, you know, or outright through the entire movie, letting on that these matches are worked. I think even when he says to him, you know, Yo Del Santo never loses, you can still take that more than one way. It's sort of like we, we want you to play ball, but it's never – it's not what I'm trying to say is it's not laid out a hundred percent. Where if you didn't know wrestling was worked, that you would come out of that movie with all your illusions being destroyed. I think I think it's done in a respectful, as respectful a way as you can do without insulting the intelligence of the yeah, audience.
0: But it's it's still a subject that's or a yes. topic that's never been breached, uh, approached before in any lucha movie or any kind of media whatsoever. You know, so it was kind of uh, interesting to uh, catch that in the movie.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And and for people that don't know, I mean, we're talking about it, but the movie Cassandro is about one of the most famous and, and important uh, Exotico figures in Lucha Libre. I believe he uh, what was the group he wrestled for? It was not CMLL, right, but predominantly
0: Okay, so Cassandra started in El Torreo, in, in UWA, in the early 90s. Before UWA. that, he was in, in Juarez, a uh, border town down by Texas, and that's where he started the Cassandra gimmick. From there, he did do some stuff with AAA, but it was not like that a big AAA name in the 90s when they had the original exoticos of Pimpinella, Rudy Reyna, My Flowers, The Rose, like when AAA first started. And they had those, uh, they had the three and then Pimpy came in a couple of years later. Cassandro came in later. And the thing with Cassandro is uh, because he was a border town, grew up in what in is in Texas in El Paso, he spoke perfect English. So when it comes time for all these movies and documentaries to come out by Americans who are looking for someone that fits that role, Cassandro can do those interviews perfectly yeah. or, or could at the time. Uh, I saw him in October, august when i went down there for uh triple mania in mexico city and he was being honored by triple a for their hall of fame so i saw him at the hotel he had a stroke like two or three years ago and his speech is very um stuttering you know he's, he's dealing with the effects of that right now but yeah he he loved the movie you know he loved the attention that that it was put on him for sure you know, I hope it's, it's helped with some medical bills and yeah. you know, put a little in his pocket, too. You
1: know, I didn't realize that. I, I didn't realize that about him. And and of course, um Elio DeSanto plays himself in the movie, which I thought yes. was very cool. Yeah,
0: um, I thought that, that was, that was cool. Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, the, the thing that interests me is that the idea that you have this culture of wrestling. Right. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand in this country that's so different From our own and i'm curious to know what you know about how american wrestling let's say wwe because it's the most prominent how is it viewed down there like when they come to mexico city and things like that is it a big deal or because they already have their established wrestling that's so huge there is it just like oh it's that american stuff like how do they view it
0: well Originally in the 90s, when I first started going to Lucha, their nose was always like stuck up, like, oh, that's, that's the fake stuff. And, you know, they use blood capsules and all the, the stuff that, you know, non wrestling fans say when they watch WWF. Nowadays, because Rey Mysterio works for WWE, it's almost viewed differently. Like, oh, one of ours made it to America and he's this huge superhero and stuff like that. Like when the WWE came down for the show in Mexico City, they put Ray and Roman Reigns together for the title. That was definitely a smart move. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what the attendance was on it, but obviously they did some great numbers with it. But now yeah, it's it's not the same. They they view the top guys, the Zenas, the Roman Reigns, the Rays, the Randy Ortons as More than just wrestlers, I mean, they're larger than life characters because of what WWE's shown them. Plus, remember, too, Ray has a cartoon on the Cartoon Network that started a week ago, so he's definitely viewed as something different. And I I think it's starting to change a a little bit to where CMLL has that original uh, two out of three falls, they stick to the rules of Lucha nowadays. Triple A's in 2001, they stopped doing two out of three falls. Everything is one fall, and they also got rid of certain rules of Lucha. Like, there literally are rules of Lucha as far as tagging in. And I'll have to put them up on my Twitter one day. But a lot of it involves why guys can come in the ring without tags. Why right. there's which
1: there's which no drives such people as, nuts. That drives some American fans nuts when they watch. Yeah, it. yeah. it's actually
0: <laughs> there. There's rules about luchas, you know, lucha libre 40s, 50s, and CMLL still does them today. There's no such thing as a hot tag. There, guys can come in the ring as long as you're on offense. But if you're on defense, they can't. You can't even like tag out. There really is no tags. But that's CMLL. Pretty much so. And I'm,
1: I'm, I'm the ignorant American fan. So now help me understand that what that means. This is interesting is if you, so you can, you can, you don't, there's no tagging, so you can come in if you're on offense. So if a guy is on defense, if he's getting hurt and he's in the, you know, he's on the ropes and all that stuff in order for him to, for his partner to come help, he has to take over the offense of the match. So if he can't come back from the beating, then they're done. They're doomed. Bingo. Wow. Bingo. That's why there's no such thing as a hot tag in a true Lucha match. I never knew that. See, I'm, yeah. I'm an idiot. Wow. That's, yeah. that's really compelling. I, I kind of like yeah. that idea. There's something appealing about that idea that yeah. this guy has to make a comeback. He or he's has done to get for. back
0: on offense. Cause if you watch like, you know, old school CML AAA from the nineties and you'll notice someone that's getting beaten up, whatever the Rudos are kicking his butt all of a sudden he, his partners just can't run the ring. He's not reaching for the hot tag. He's got to do something where he's whipped into the ropes, comes out, ducks a clothesline, hurricanrana. And then his partners come running in the ring at that point, because he's on offense.
1: What I kind of like about like that about- is that one thing that drives me nuts about American tag team wrestling now is, you know, we we've always seen the idea that when your guy, your guy's getting pinned, his partner's going to come in and try and break up the pin, you know, and a lot of times it'll happen more with the heels and the faces will only do it. Maybe if they're provoked, but technically i mean there's no such thing as real rules in american wrestling i guess but yeah. it's it's supposed to be illegal and the referee's supposed to give you a warning and get your partner out but it's become so accepted now that it's just part of tag team wrestling that anytime somebody is getting pinned their partner is going to try and break it up and so it gets to the point now where they do this thing which i find so dumb now where they have to find a way to neutralize the tag team partner so he has to be out on the floor unconscious or something it's the only way you can get a finish in a tag team match because otherwise the fans are going to go, well, why didn't the partner try to come in and break that up? Like that's how accepted it's become. We've lost the idea that, well, technically that's illegal. You're not supposed to do that. So I like the idea that there's an actual explanation for why the partner wouldn't come in and try and save the guy, you know, because yes. I, yes. you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that, they just let it go all the time in American wrestling. Oh, he's going to break up the pin. Oh, of course he is, you know, and that that never used to be the case. I think I even remember a time where you can get disqualified if you did it too much. Like, you do it a couple of times, you'd get a warning, but if you kept doing it like a pattern of behavior, the ref would disqualify the team.
0: Whatever happened to the five count, too? Like I know. The referees don't, don't do the five count anymore. Um, what was it? Uh, I heard Matt Cardona or Brian Myers once say, when they were in deep south or ohio valley or florida championship whatever it was that ricky morton was one of the trainers and he was always training double team moves or whatever but then when they got to wwe there was that time where they were doing the legitimate like the referee counted five yes and you would get disqualified and it would actually like Beforehand, they would say who's winning, who's losing, who's going over, whatever. However, the legitimate counting, if if you counted five, the referee did, you were disqualified, even if that wasn't the plan. Yeah. And Cardona was saying that kind of screwed everything up because you, you're trained to get all this double-team stuff in, but there's a legitimate five count going on. So, yeah.
1: Right, because well, I think when you've got a lot of these guys that – you know, want to be able to do the spots they want to do, but, and they don't want the referee getting too in the middle of things. But I think you wind up losing some of the tension or the psychology of the match. Like some of these things make me sad. Like when I see, like, I'll give you an example. When I see a guy now, they don't, they don't even bother counting or doing anything when, especially, Uh especially in AEW, if a guy climbs to the top rope. Now, obviously I You never want to see a guy on the top rope take a five count and get disqualified. There'd be a riot. That would be the stupidest thing ever. But you have to create the illusion that, okay, he's up on the ropes. He has a limited amount of time. It's almost like a shot clock. He's got to make his move or the referee's going to disqualify him. Now the referee just stands there in the corner and just watches the guy climb to the top rope and just patiently waits until he does whatever move he's going to do. And I feel like a referee should always be looking like he's doing something. You know what I mean? And a lot of yeah. these rules, such as they are, are just thrown out the window, and a referee is just there to count a
0: three count. Yeah, I mean, another thing, too, is – Look at some of the old dives that Lucha was doing in the 90s. Not so much the dive itself, but watch the guy who's catching him. There was always – there isn't this standing around for 20, 30 seconds waiting for (laughs) him to get into position, whatever. It was done so smoothly and quickly where it was almost like right when the guy um, catches that it's about to happen or or sees it, that's when he's hit. The amount of time nowadays it's taking to catch guys that are – guys that are doing these amazing dives is really starting to get out of hand in my opinion um even wwe the other day uh, my wife and i were watching the survivor series and charlotte i believe it was charlotte did a, a moonsault from the top of the cage yes cameras were focused on her the whole time getting up there and get ready to do it and my whole time i'm thinking can you imagine being a fan live what's going on on the ground how many people are there waiting to catch her? they're probably just all standing around looking up Right, because
1: because the cameras are very careful not to show that they don't show you until the last second when they're caught.
0: WWE cameras.
1: No, you're right. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. But if you're there (laughs) live, as I've been, like I told this story, um, a while back, where I went to an AEW show near me, and you, and I'm sure it happens with WWE too. You can see a lot of the stuff you're not supposed to see, like where they're doing these multiple person matches where. Let's say you're doing a four-way match and you don't want to have all four guys constantly beating each other up. You want to be able to focus on two guys. So they take two guys out of the match. But if you're watching live, you literally will see them laying on the floor and they're just watching the match, <laughs> waiting until they're supposed to get back in. And it's the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your, in your life. Like, maybe try and think of a, a better way to deal with that problem, because there are better ways to deal with it. But uh, they, they don't uh, they don't bother. You know, the RVD talked about that when I had him on here. RVD almost feels partly guilty because he invented or, or innovated a lot of this stuff that he sees guys do it now. And he's just like, no, you're doing it the wrong way. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're making it look bad. And he, he hates crap like that when, with all the cooperation and AEW recently had a referee helping the guy to set up a table. I mean, come yeah. on. Come oh on
0: my now. What was the one that, re- that really gets me nowadays is where you see a tag match where someone's getting their butt whooped absolutely destroyed like a good five six minutes they finally get the hot tag they tag out they're on the ring apron they're not even selling the last six minutes they got Mm -hmm. their butt whooped and they're just standing there like absolutely nothing happened i mean you literally crawled got the hot tag you you're supposed to perceive that you're still hurt and injured whatever And then like a half minute minute later he tags you back in and you're coming in like nothing happened that is really starting to get out of hand too
1: it's almost like the video game mentality. I think a lot of this is influenced yes. by video games because if you're in a video game, if you're a video game character, right? Your little energy bar is down to almost nothing, right? And then you tag out, you're on the apron and your energy bar goes back to the top. It's, it's like they're almost yeah. they're almost performing as if they were a character in a video
0: game, you know. Yeah, it's it's oh, I mean I don't know does I, I keep hearing Disco Inferno saying AW doesn't even have agents for for that talk to each other before the matches to make sure that no one has the same finish in each other's matches.
1: Well, what uh, I'll say wow. is this: I I uh, I'll tell a little some tales out of school. I'm not going to name anybody, but you yeah. know I know some people that are um, that have been back, backstage there that have been in that environment, and so I've gotten you know some some firsthand accounts that I trust. And I don't think that it's the case that there's no agents. But what I think is that the agents don't have anywhere near the authority that say they do in WWE. I think there's a lot of lip service. It's just sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's nice. That's nice. And we're just going to do what we're going to do. And I think the agents sometimes very often kind of throw their hands up. Like they know they don't have any power. And so like people were telling me that sometimes The agents are not even really, they're just like in the background. Like guys are working their match out in the ring or whatever they do. The agents are kind of hanging around, not really that closely involved and they're just rubber stamping it. Like, okay, looks good. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You guys, I trust you guys, you know what you're doing. And that's, but that's why you see things like finishes getting repeated, big moves, getting repeated, things that don't make sense. And guys agenting their own matches. And look, uh, You know, there weren't always agents in wrestling. I mean, WWE WWE (laughs) kind of invented that thing, that idea in the 80s pretty much of having this cast of agents. But there's a reason they did that. They did that because they wanted their product to look as good on national television as it could possibly look. And so if you want the same thing, and that's the best system to use. You know, it's different if you're just doing it for The 10 12,000 people that are there, which was the mentality, right? It doesn't matter as much, but if you're on national TV, you want it to be as polished as it could be, and that's you need those people. You know, my favorite
0: story about agents is <laughs> you ever hear when uh, uh, Chief Jay Strongbow was agenting an Owen Hart match, and I think I might I know this,
1: yeah.
0: Owen was in the ring, um like kind of pretending nothing hurt or whatever and basically kind of making a mockery of it i think he was trying to pop someone in the crowd or the boys backstage or (laughs) something like that a strong blow caught what was going on and he started saying that was ridiculous what you were doing if this was a real fight what would you do and owen goes if this was a real fight i'd get out and break out in a war dance (laughs) You know, like, <laughs> and Strongbow like had nothing. Oh, the like, man! Walked away.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting guy. You know, uh, working on the Gorilla Monsoon book. It's interesting to me that they're sort of like two sides of a coin. Those two guys, and they got along very well, apparently. Uh, I and mean, they're both Italian, pretending to not be Italian, right? So they had that in common. <laughs> yeah. But but it's an interesting thing when you hear people talk. Like, there's a lot of shoot interviews out there of people like WWF wrestlers of the eighties and nineties trashing chief J Strongbow. You you'll hear that a lot. Like apparently he was kind of grumpy and sometimes he gave advice that they didn't like or trust. And you know, he was, he would do sometimes kind of mean, cruel things, but with gorilla, it's the exact opposite. Like everybody loved him. Everybody trusted him. The advice that he gave was always like on the money. and, And he was, he was well loved. And it's it's just interesting how they both have a similar background and even in the company and they got along so well, but they couldn't have been more different as far as their backstage presence was.
0: You know, I want to hear more like I love going to Cauliflower Alley. One of the reasons is Tony Gurria. He has some wonderful stories. I mean, about his own career, but also agenting, you know, I mean, he was doing a lot of um, stuff that he was involved in that he doesn't get the credit for, you know, going going back to the 80s and 90s. He'd-
1: yeah, you're right about that. And I think part of the reason he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. I mean, he's not in the Hall of Fame there, and he should be. He really absolutely should be. I think the times that I've talked to Tony and I've interviewed him both when I worked at WWE and even in recent times I interviewed him for the Gorilla Book is, you know, he's not an egomaniac. He's not one of these guys that loves to put himself over. He's a soft-spoken guy. He's the kind of guy where you have to kind of coax the stories out of him. But once you do, they're great stories. But he's this—he's very much sort of like the times I've talked to him, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess it's sort of a big deal. I did this, that or the other thing. But he doesn't consider it as much of a big deal as you do when you're talking to him. So I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't get that credit, because he's not a professional a self-promoter, you know?
0: Yeah. Didn't you have a similar story where Shane McMahon walked through your office and saw a photo of his like grandfather? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah, and like they don't, they when they're in that world they don't consider it that big a deal, but right. you know, as fans and whatever we do. And that's then, it. magically yeah. a week later the photo ended up in his office or something.
1: Yeah, he you know, that's right cuz cuz they're so close to it. Like I interviewed when I talked to Tony Garea like at the in those days when I worked at WWE Not a lot of people were talking to him because a lot of the younger writers and editors like – They weren't really up on that era of the company and they didn't know how long he'd been there and the tag team titles he'd held and everything. And I would ask him these questions like, Listen, you were tag team partners with Haystacks Calhoun. Like, can we talk about that? And he would just say, Oh, yeah, you know, that was interesting. We were very different people. And, you know, and I used to like to go out after the shows and Haystacks just went back to his room and like in this very matter of fact way. But Shane was the same way. Like you said, I had. You know, he looked at me like I was nuts because I had a picture of his grandfather up at my workstation because to him, that's just his grandfather. Right. Like you said, yeah. he was like, no, 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 no. This is not just no offense. This isn't just your grandfather. This is like, you know, but yeah, uh, later on, he wound up getting prints of the photo made up for his family. And it wound up appearing in the opening montage of the WWE uh, pro- programming for years. The yeah. photo, The photo of Vince Senior with the pencil in his hand, looking at the, at the scheduling book, like literally booking the territory, you know, yeah. I, I think he, he didn't realize what a big deal it was. I think what happened was that people told him what a big deal it was, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that story.
1: <laughs> yeah. Guys get, uh, it's not, I can respect that to a certain degree. It's like you're, you're it's, it's your job. It's your world. Like I think, It's an interesting thing to me. Sometimes the difference between the older generation of wrestlers and the younger generation is my experience of interviewing them is that the old, the younger guys care much more about the titles that they've held and the matches than the older guys do where um, to them, it's more of a job and they're more cognizant of the money they drew as opposed to the titles and things. Like I, I, I had an interview, Uh, Ric Flair, for an article we did on his 16 world titles, we did this, and we wanted to break down every single one when you won it and what do you remember, and, you know, uh, no offense, it wasn't his fault, but I think it really was a chore for him, because it got to the point where he was like, look... He said to me, I think, you know, and remember more about this than I do. Like he, he's like, I'm good with the first couple. And he goes, if you want to embellish it or write what you remember, feel free. But you don't find that as much with like, I'd, I'd talk to somebody like um, the Hardy Boys or somebody like that, and, and they can quote you chapter and verse on every title they won and where it was and who they beat and all this kind of thing. And uh, the, the, I think it just it's a different mentality.
0: You know, you talk to Lawler, you know, he, to Lawler, it's a job, you know, yeah. like you you bring up when you came into WWF and he'll tell you, oh, summer of 93. It was actually late 92. He, he'll get dates wrong, forget certain facts, whatever. And it's not like he's trying to lie or deceive the public when you've been in the business that long. It just you're not going to remember everything with a fine fine comb. You know, uh, fine combing it or whatever. Even Ray himself, I saw Ray in 2017 and I had him sign the program to the P- Peace Festival and he was confusing it with When Worlds Collide. You know, oh, he's, not, yeah. he's not trying to deceive me. He just, it's so many shows and so many events he's been to that, you know, unless something like, oh, the first show after Dominic was born or something with a personal note to it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for a lot of these guys to remember the exact details as well and i i I commend you for the books that you write for you know when you interview guys you know they're they're trying the best they can but i'm sure at the end of the day still it's a job it's not easy
1: right and you have to take what they say with a grain of salt like you said not because they're lying to you although sometimes they might be but because um they're right their memory is not the most reliable like i i always try to Double check and look things up and try and figure out what the real timeline was. Um, but other times, it's amazing to me. Like um, what I've been finding with Gorilla Monsoon and hearing, you know, there's very few. There was one great interview that he gave with a with a Philadelphia radio station where he he really was pretty candid and it was interesting. And other than that, like sometimes he would talk about his career on commentary. And it, this particular thing blew me away, um, do you remember when? They had Nick Bockwinkel very briefly. The WWF brought him in, and he was. Um, they weren't. They, they decided not to make him a wrestler. He was kind of old. They made him a road right. He was a road agent, but he also they tried him out on commentary, and yeah. and and they didn't really love him. But there's some shows that he did with Gorilla. Gorilla, yeah, they're, they're calling uh, Same, right. Um, You know, I know they did some Maple Leaf Garden shows, maybe SummerSlam. Yeah. I know Superstar Graham was on SummerSlam with yeah. Gorilla, but there's a couple shows. And I heard Gorilla say something to Bachwinkle on one of them where he's just like he made a comment like, oh, you know, there was once this match in Hawaii with a certain individual who's sitting next to me right now in a tag team match where he threw me out of the ring and I hit my head on on a microphone stand or blah, blah, blah. And, and Bockwinkel is like laughing it off. And I'm sitting there going like, are they just bullshitting or I'm going to look this up. And God damn it. It happened. I found the match, the date they had a tag team match in Hawaii. It was, um, I forget the other participants, but Bockwinkel was on one side. Gorilla was on the other. It was while Gorilla was briefly, um, working out of California for about a year or two. And he would do shots in Hawaii. And it, it amazed me that he would have such a specific memory and that he would say it on the air like that in a match during a match um, wow. it, you don't really get that a lot from those old timers like their memories notoriously fuzzy or everything's just blended together but it was for him it was crystal clear i think on a lot of things
0: yeah cuz i don't know if it was a vince specifically i mean in, in those days what i don't know if vince was in their ear like i know nowadays someone's on the ear with Corey Graves and Michael Cole kind of, you know, giving yeah. them pointers or whatever. I don't know if it was like that back then, but going back, God, if you listen as a kid in the eighties, I'd watch this. And I mean, obviously as a kid, I have no clue what the hell the Terry Garvin school of Self oh, Defense, yes. is
1: I know.
0: <laughs> any of that stuff was about, but it's sometimes fun to go back and watch some of those old shows because you would hear um Gorilla Monsoon mentioned, uh, when Jesse Ventura is interviewing Adrian Adonis, oh, these two used to be in the East-West connection. That never happened in WWF. That was an AWA thing, and he's mentioning yeah. it. You know? I
1: always thought that was interesting how he would do that. Uh, and I think in the case of as far as Vince being in their ears, I I think back in those days, I'd, I think it was a lot less because a lot of those guys were people that he respected too much to do that to. They were like his father's friends. Like, I, I my understanding is... You know, Gorilla was not yelling. I'm sorry, Vince was not yelling in Gorilla's ear the way he would, let's say, for a Michael Cole, um, or even a Jr. I think it was more kind of like polite suggestions of what yeah. he might want to do. And I think in the end, he kind of respected Gorilla's decisions and things. I think there were some discussions on what to do and how to do it, but there was a lot more leeway back then. And and he would, Gorilla would reference stuff like that. Like I remember when the Funk's came in. And he was calling, uh, in the beginning, you know, he would call Dory, Dory Funk, even though they were calling him Haas Funk. And at one point, he says something on the air. He goes, well, I've been informed that now we are going to be referring to Dory Funk Jr. as Haas Funk. So I guess we'll call him that. Like, you know, only he could get away with with saying uh, things like that, you know, just kind of like... um, He look, he's the he's a big reason why Bret Hart got over because he would talk about the Hart family and Stu Hart and the dungeon and when no one else did. And he felt comfortable going out of the WWE zone and talking about all of wrestling whenever it when it suited their purpose. With Harley Race, he never came out and said when Harley Race was king, Harley Race. He's not gonna come out and say he was the NWA world champion. That would be forbidden. But he would definitely make reference to the fact that this man had a lot of major accomplishments outside of the World Wrestling Federation. He he was the only one that seemed to be able to do that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And remember the early um, Tuesday Night Titans? Like Vince brought Luthez on and called him a former NWA champion. So, I mean, yes. there was that early period where that was allowed and they still mentioned – what when um, Vince took over the Blanchard's USA channel and they had the early episodes of was, uh, what was the name of the show on there? All
1: American. All American. All American
0: wrestling. wrestling. Remember, they like you would talk about David Von Erich passing away and they were showing world class matches and Mid-South matches.
1: Yeah. All American wrestling was a weird thing when it first came on the air because it was supposed to be treated as a showcase of wrestling in all different territories. And and when I went into the WWF video vaults, I actually found some of those clips and things of the different territories from that, like, 83, 84 era. And that's how they sold the show to USA. But it was a little bit nefarious and underhanded because what it really was was they were trying to educate fans, WWF fans, fans. On the particular stars that they were going to be going after, so they're showing That's the crazy. Von Erichs, right? They're showing the Von Erichs because Vince wants the Von Erichs. They're showing, you know, I don't I'm know sure if they... a
0: dog in mid- right Mid-South. exactly
1: in mid south because they wanted JYD. So, yep. it wa- and of course, the other promoters were like, "You you want some of my footage for your show? Oh, absolutely, here you go. Great, thank you so much." But it was sort of like a wolf in sheep's clothing thing going on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Man, I, I, you, um, I love the amount of stuff in the vault, and I wish more of it was out there. A lot of it has to do is whoever owns Peacock fine combs that stuff like you wouldn't believe. Like I was told, um, you know, they really have to pay attention to the commentary. I mean, you and I know Jesse Ventura would say some pretty crazy stuff on there. Like, you remember? Yeah. Um, yeah. What was it the Saturday night main event with um, what was it Bob Orton and Mr. T were boxing before WrestleMania 2? They had a match on there, or whatever. And then Piper comes out and starts whipping Mr. T with uh, Bob Orton. And the original broadcast, Jesse Ventura, is like, Oh, this looks like Roots 2. Oh, <laughs> my god, yeah. And of course, the Peacock version takes that out.
1: Oh, did they? I didn't even know that they were taking out stuff like that.
0: Yeah, they, they, yeah, they're pretty much have to or there was great american bash 1991 there's a match with brian pillman against johnny b bad and brian pillman looks in the and remember pillman's the face he looks in the camera before the match and goes his name isn't johnny b bad his name is johnny b gay and the whole crowd starts chanting johnny b gay if you watch the peacock they actually like this part of footage is lost forever, and we can't find it <laughs> anymore. They come up with some wacky excuse on that 15 seconds why it's gone. But
1: yeah, it's hard. Like wrestling, so hard with stuff like that. It gets to the point where you, you, some of it you can't. Like I was watch, you know, I mean, like certain, even certain characters, like they would talk about uh, some of the black wrestlers or especially the Samoan wrestlers how their heads were harder yeah. than the white wrestlers. I mean, and it was just like common, like like a common thing to say to the point where the fans just accepted. Oh, don't, don't headbutt the junkyard dog, you're going to, you're going to get the worst <laughs> of that. It was just, uh, you know, rattled off without thinking. I, I know there was a primetime episode. I don't know if this is on Peacock, but it definitely happened where gorilla monsoon had like a stuffed gorilla on his desk. Cause he's gorilla monsoon. And yeah. I think Bobby asked him if it was a cocoa beware doll. Like, you know, I mean, that's insane. Um, and I don't know. Remember I, I don't,
0: Jesse? Remember Jesse Ventura? Like he would never call him Coco Beware. He called Buckwheat.
1: Buckwheat <laughs> Wear, Right. Buckwheat where? That kind of, that, right. And he did that at WrestleMania three. And yeah. so, I mean, like, it's hard. It's like, it, it, it's understandable why sometimes fans get freaked out because they know how much bad stuff is in there. And they're thinking, oh my God, if the executives really knew, they might pull the whole library off. You know, like it's not even worth the trouble to to scrub it. But I think that's sometimes why it's better when it may not be better for their bottom line, but it was better when WWE controlled their own streaming platform. They could just do what they want. And, you know, you just say, it's like what you do with films or old cartoons and things. You put a disclaimer at the beginning. And I understand that rather than tamper with the historical footage and mess with it and chop it up, (sighs) you just, you acknowledge it, you put a disclaimer on it and you move on. This is historical footage, you know?
0: Yeah like Andre the Giant would wrestle Junkyard Dog and Andre would headbutt JYD and Andre would be selling it well that's because he's black and he should have known better you can't do that to Junkyard Dog and
1: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild what they what they got away with, like you said, with Gorilla and the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. And they were oh making God. all these inside jokes. And, you know, little did we know what was going on. I think he even made like a foot joke about Mel Phillips on one of the primetime episodes too. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, now knowing what we know now. And it's not just him. It's everybody. I mean, Lord Alfred Hayes and Bobby Heenan and Mean Gene Oakland. I mean, they all were doing that.
0: Yeah, and like Lord Alfred Hayes, I was watching the other day, and the two guys were in the ring, and this fine young man is a uh, a, a student of the Terry Garvin School of Self Defense, and then Lord Alfred Hayes, all yeah, and I heard he'd get really deep behind him and really teach. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, believe me, I've been going through all that footage, and it's all in there. It's very much in there. Um, you know, it was an interesting time. It's like uh, it's probably you know people could point to that and say. That is even for somebody like a gorilla monsoon, who's well regarded in the business, that it's a blemish on on their legacy, that a lot of these people looked the other way and did nothing. And they clearly knew what was going on. And, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, that that is part of what came with the closed nature of the business back then. I mean, it was like the mafia. You did not yeah. snitch. You did not open your mouth. You were not disloyal. You put your head down, even if you didn't like it. And you just kept marching forward. And I think that's what some of these old-timers did. And interestingly, like, the guy that couldn't do that was Bruno. And Bruno was the guy that walked away that said, I can't – I'm not going to, you know, sit by and just let all this stuff go on in this company. It's like a sewer, and I don't want to be involved with it. But um, that was by far the exception and not the rule of what was going on. Yes.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: But, you know, I wanted to mention, too, uh, while we still have time, the other – aspect I wanted to talk about a little bit is Japan because I know that that's another great love of yours, but um, the, the thing and uh, um, that when I asked you before about Lucha and the way they look at American wrestling there, one of the reasons I mentioned it is because if, if my understanding is right, um, it's really not a big deal in Japan at all. Like WWE is really very, a very minor blip on the radar over there. Um, It's not, um, in any way a threat to their own kind of brand of wrestling, right?
0: It Crazy thing about Japan is you talk to old timers that are from Japan, live in Japan, even the newer generation, like you bring up pro wrestling to them. It's still giant Baba, Antonio Noki, Ricky Dozan. You know, you talk about the Americans, all oh, they know, Stan Hansen, uh, Hulk Hogan, Andre the giant, the destroyer, you know, the, the, the larger than life stars from there. Nowadays, that no one in Japan fits that mold. They mm. don't have the mega stars anymore. Ye- Okada, um, just the guys nowadays that are Tanahashi's. The there, there's no crossover between that market and the mainstream in Japan. So it's it's not that it's shunned or looked down on. It's Japan has not done a good job creating those larger than life characters like they used to have. Well, let me
1: ask you this. The 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 crossover, right? The way that you mentioned how some of those stars are legends forever, right? Um, is that an awareness that's mainly really just with the older people in Japan? Or do the younger people there who weren't even around, do they have an, a, an awareness of, of those guys? Or is that sort of like, talk- yeah, that's kind None. of what I thought. It's like talking to somebody here about, you know, who's 20 years old about Luthez. You know what I mean? They're going to look at you yeah. like you are got eight heads or something
0: yeah the thing with lucha is even nowadays santo movies are the normal on the weekends i was in tijuana back in august or september and i turned the tv on before the show began i was just flipping through channels santo movies on like 40 channels two of them had santo movies on so okay. it's still the normal kids there grow up still idolizing and knowing who Santo is because he's very much a part of their culture. In Japan, that doesn't exist anymore. There is yeah. nothing crossover. Uh, they, they may know the name Anoki because he fought Muhammad Ali and there's things that he, he was part of their Senate over there, the Japan Diet. But they, they don't have that anymore over there.
1: Yeah, you know, I I one of the non-wrestling books that I wrote was a book about Godzilla and Godzilla films. And Did you hear the
0: guy who did the costume passed away this morning?
1: Which one? Because I know the original guy died a while ago, Haruo Nakajima.
0: Yeah, I, I was going through online this morning and whoever it was passed away at 84 years old, the guy who wore the costume in some oh, of the fights or something.
1: Okay, yes. No, I think I know who you mean. He was, he played, okay, so 80, right. So he played him. I believe in the second wave of Godzilla movies that came out in the eighties and nineties. Um, I forget the Satsuma. guy's name. Satsuma. Right. Satsuma. Right. Yes. Satsuma. Yeah, passed away right. Okay. So he took over the role um, when they brought Godzilla back in the eighties, like with Godzilla 1984 and all that. Uh, right. But when I wrote um, that book, I came across this phenomenon, which I think maybe is similar to what has happened with the wrestling is, In America, we have a very different view than they would have in Japan. Like in America, almost, and this may have changed with the past couple of Godzilla movies that have come out, but in America, Godzilla is better remembered than he is even in Japan. Like in Japan today, the Japan of today, Godzilla is something like, it's like, what your What your mom, dad or grandparents watched or liked. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of like this archaic part of pop culture.
0: It wasn't really like John Wayne movies to us, like yes. Roy Roger movies to us. It's, yeah, it's at- considered a past generation.
1: Yeah. It's almost like another thing is is um, like Laurel and Hardy. I discovered because I was a big Laurel and Hardy fan that Laurel and Hardy is, is, is beloved in the United Kingdom way more than in the United States today. But it's seen as something that your parents and grandparents like. So, I mean, like if you if you talk to people in America, it's almost like Godzilla feels like more a present part of the pop culture here than there. And I wonder if it's something similar, whereas if you talk to American wrestling fans, they might, the ones that are in the know, they might know more about, you know, Stan Hansen, Bruiser Brody, Ricky Dozan, uh, you know, Jumbo no. Saruta, Tatsumi Fujinami, than, than fans of a similar age in Japan. It's just not as big no. of a...
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really... Go- it, while well, it goes by generations. It's crazy that so many uh, generations come up that it's, like, not not really even passed down anymore. It's not... I don't know, maybe, maybe TV back then you only had X amount of channels and right. there were so few channels that you did something you, you watched or came across so often nowadays kids just grab their phones to watch what they want. And there's not that crossover anymore.
1: Well, know? it's it's like that even here with everything It's this interesting paradox, which I've talked about where you have greater accessibility to anything you want to see from any time period ever than there's ever been. But, you have to make more of an effort to seek it out. You, you don't just turn on the TV and on network TV, they're showing, you know, gone with the wind like that doesn't happen. You've got to actually work to find it so people don't bother to look for those things anymore. But uh, somebody there was something somebody said. I wish I was the one that came up with it, but it really points to the difference between the two cultures here. Like, if you look at look at Eddie Kingston in AEW, he's the mm-hmm. example. Now, now, Eddie Kingston, part of his persona as a wrestler is that he reveres these legends of Japanese wrestling and he mentions their name and how yeah. much he wants to be in the same conversation, how he looks up to them and how you would never have a wrestler in Japan that would be talking that way or having that attitude or saying those things. It's almost like, those people are more revered by people like Eddie Kingston than they even are if you go over to Japan, you know?
0: So a friend of mine ran the virtual signing with Toshiaki Kawada when he was here in America and Kawada was blown away. How many people had posters, magazines, memorabilia that of his career that even exist? I mean, Kawada runs a little ramen shop in Tokyo, that does not get a lot of business wow and so he's a uh, yeah it's it's crazy the the cultural difference
1: that, I mean, that happens. People talk about uh, it's like the funny joke uh, about Jerry Lewis, how Jerry Lewis, not that Jerry Lewis was obscure in America, but how Jerry Lewis was this cultural institution in France, how he was like worshipped as being this genius of comedy. And so I think that even happens with American figures like like I said, Laurel and Hardy in the UK are bigger than they are in America. How you've got these American exports that somehow take a life of their own. In other countries and are better remembered than they even are here. You look at Hasselhoff in Germany. He's like one right. of
0: the top singers ever.
1: It's yes. Like- and and another, another great example, and it pertains to Lucha, actually, and we can close on, I could bring it full circle. Um, yeah. You know how um, so in WWE, the Russell Santos Escobar. Um, his father was the luchador El Fantasma, Fantasma. Right. Yep. Now the El Fantasma luchador character is based on an American comic strip, The Phantom, but, um, yeah. which I who I wrote about in my superheroes book. Now the Phantom, forget the name of the creator, Falk, I think was his name, but it was created in the 30s and was a very big deal. 30s, 40s, 50s influenced comic book superheroes and everything. He was the first um, costumed superhero in a comic strip ever but almost completely forgotten in the United States. I mean, they made that horrible movie in the nineties with uh, Billy Zane. That totally.
0: Oh my God. I remember that now. Yeah. Right.
1: And he played the phantom. But what I learned writing the superheroes book is that the phantom character has endured in these far-flung places, like there's countries in Africa where he's an institution. Um, He became an institution in Mexico and influenced the luchador tradition and things like that, whereas here, almost completely unknown by this
0: point. Did you see the documentary about the singer that somehow his record ended up in South Africa? And he ended up being... um, like a huge freaking deal. And he didn't even know about it for decades. (laughs) And then finally someone, they were South Africa believed the singer had died uh, a long time ago. And then finally someone reached out and the doctor goes, are you talking about my father? Like in America, his record only sold 30 copies. Oh but God. in South Africa, it was like multi millions, and of course, it's like, well, where was, where was all that money going? <laughs> but he ended up going to South Africa finally in the mid two thousands, and you know, having concerts there that sold out. Um, he had a Rodriguez.
1: That's wild. Was his, no, I didn't know. Yeah, that. there's
0: a there is a movie about it. Um, about his life, I'd have to look it up, and I'm sure one of the listeners out there can bring it up. But yeah, Rodriguez was it's was weird. his name
1: it's weird how that happens. Like if, if you look at the uh, costume of El Fantasmo, it's loosely inspired by the phantom with the domino mask and, and, and the look of, of how the phantom looked and um, the origins of that are probably even forgotten. There there's a tribe in Africa who uses his iconography with on their weaponry and on their shields and things that they, because the character is so revered, but um yeah, pop culture is weird like that. You know, think Yeah, it's called
0: it's called Searching for Sugar Man. It's about oh, the life of Sixto Rodriguez. Okay. So, yeah, literally the top singer all-time of Australia, South Africa, and the guy who lived in Detroit had no clue that he was as big as he was until like the mid 2000s and he had sold more albums than Elvis, the Beatles, all that combined.
1: Well, somebody then as you Hinted at was clearly also ripping him off because, yeah, if that was the case, he should have been seeing a piece of that. So, somebody was making a field day on it. That's amazing,
0: yeah. So, th- to me, it's crazy how Lucha, you, when you go to a Lucha show, you almost have to think. As a, not an American watching outside on a lucha thing, you have to think almost like a Mexican while you're watching it, how the crowd reacts. It's completely different than a U.S. experience. I mean, you catch a true lucha show. There's promotions up here in America, Pro Wrestling Revolution. There's some other ones that do it in English with luchadors and stuff like that. Then when you go down to Mexico and you get that lucha flavor to it, like I took my wife to, I mean, we went to Arena Mexico in 2020 in march of 2020 but guess what happened the week that we were there Mm. the world shut down yeah so so we um, went back in 2022 and she experienced true lucha for the first time where like triple a ran their triple mania show there was one match on there between la park and viano four not a single flip or dive or anything like that but there's this like feeling of lucha to it like this emotion to it and when you when you go to a Lucha show and you just feel like a certain energy and difference from that, from an American audience. It's, it's a, it's a crazy feeling and it's why I've fallen in love with Lucha. I've probably been to over two, 3000 shows in my life. I, I lost count a long time ago, but this has become my life and I, I love Lucha with all my, all my heart and soul.
1: Well, now, now I know I need to get down there and I want to get down there more than ever before. I have to, I have to see this for myself. I've gotten the, the video sent to me, but your, you know, your love of this comes through and I'm, I'm just glad that, that you made some time to talk about it and come here because I think a lot of people listening to this, um, will feel the same way.
0: I hope so. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, 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 it's crazy those shows in the 90s that i went to in the los angeles area los angeles bell carson compton especially compton we all we all know compton the EZE, nwa all that stuff going on there used to be these lucha shows taking place in compton every friday night 80 to 100 people there and they would have ray mysterio there psychosis la parka all these big names in front of all those in front of a small crowd they would come up and, and Ray told me he got like 100 200 bucks for the shows Jericho worked there too you know he was in town to see uh Ozzy Osbourne and he came in and worked a show there but what was crazy looking back is I talked to the promoter the luchadors and all that I was the only white person in that crowd <laughs> literally the only white person in the crowd on, on the majority of those shows
1: easy right? to find it's, you right if they're yeah, looking for easy,
0: easy to see me yeah but it, there's just a feel to it that I really can't be matched. And, you know, I, I I invite everyone out there. If you have a chance to really catch a true Lucha Libre show, get, do it. You know, some amazing Absolutely.
1: stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know I will at my soonest, soonest opportunity, maybe next summer. Who knows? And when I do, I will <laughs> report back to you for sure.
0: Got you. Can I share my socials?
1: Yeah, please. Let's do that. Uh, how people can find you and all that good stuff.
0: So, the best way to find me is on Twitter at Roy Lucher, R O Y L U C I E R. I do have a blue check mark. Um, the reason I paid for it is as many videos as I have in my collection is over 17,000 DVDs at the last count. When I upload a video onto Twitter, remember if you're not blue check marked, it's limited at two minutes, 20 seconds. With the check mark, you can upload as long as you want. So, that's why I put that up on there. Oh, okay. So, that's how you can find me um i'm always sharing i have thousands of lucha magazines japanese magazines american magazines to go through uh, as far as my videos by the way i mentioned having 17,000 videos now i used to have one youtube channel for everything but then copyright would come and the entire channel would get taken down so what i do is i put all my stuff up on different youtube channels roy lucher cmll roy lucher AAA, roy lucher WWF Roy Lusher Houston Roy Lusher Olympic auditorium Roy Lusher um, whatever I can think of uh, wrestling independence Japanese women all Japan so everything's on different channels so let's say one channel gets taken down the rest of the channels still exist. I don't charge for any of my stuff as much as my wife would like me to make some money off of this <laughs> I put all this up for free to share with the world. I travel the world. I still—I went to Monterey a few months ago and bought a huge VHS collection. And I'm still sitting here going through them tape by tape, looking for rare stuff. And I found quite a bit of it that you know the public hasn't seen in a long time. It's just, it's, a, it's a huge passion of mine, you know, just to share it with the world.
1: That's great, and I know I'm—I know I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people out there that appreciate. The stuff that you do and that uh, the others like you have done to preserve the history. It's so important.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: There you have it, folks. My long-awaited conversation with Roy Lucier Roy, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show and talk about Lucha Libre and so much more. I know that I appreciated it. And I hope that the listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle appreciate it as well. And keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because next week is something I know you're going to appreciate. People have loved the couple of episodes I've done where I dip into my archives of interviews that I conducted in the past. Either in my time working for WWE or otherwise. And I'm doing it again with next week, episode 105. It's going to be an archival interview that I did in 2007 with the living legend, Bruno Sammartino. I can't wait to share this with you. I've been sitting on it for so long. I've done nothing with it, really, all these years. I'll talk about why I did it and the purpose of it and everything. And I'll be sharing it with you. I believe it's about a half hour long or so. That'll be next week, episode 105 of Shut Up and Wrestle from the archives. Other great guests on the way, we've got Kristen Ashley from the staff of Pro Wrestling Illustrated talking about women's wrestling. We've got Steve Johnson, the historian and writer and longtime working partner of Greg Oliver, as well as the author of a book that a lot of people are talking about, Ballyhoo, talking about John Langmead, a conversation about the early 20th century history of professional wrestling. That's going to be one you're not going to want to miss. Check out our show each and every week. You can find it at our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it in all the other usual places where you find podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, join our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. It's a great group of folks. If you want to make a modest financial contribution to the show, there's a few ways you can do it on my Twitter profile, Brian R. Solomon. You'll find a contribution button at the top of my profile page where you can contribute via Venmo or Cash App. If you prefer to use PayPal, I am Brian R. Solomon on there, so seek me out. You can also reach out to me via email, brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, if you want to pick up an autographed copy of either of my two books that are out now, Blood and Fire, the Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Chic, or Superheroes, the History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. But there's a lot of other projects I work on that you can check out. There's the Wrestling News each and every morning from Arcadian Vanguard, find it at wrestlingnews.com or on the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, get it at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you'll find the link to my author website out on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And also asking, what can I say to you after I've said that I'm sorry? So long, wrestling fans.